Welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. In sync, I think. <laughs> Dang it, now I want to start singing in sync songs. Um, how do I start these again? <laughs> it's been so long. Like, what am I doing? Where am I? What day is it? Where is my house? No. Uh, what year is it? <laughs> Well, that is a question sometimes still. It's January. Like, wait, is it 2022 still? No. Um, anyway. Oh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Not too long this time. At least we didn't give months in between. It wasn't a six-month break. We're doing better. <laughs> it's holidays and uh, cold and flu season. Everyone in my house is hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I have to hard agree. I just have boxes of Kleenex near me at all times. Yeah, I ran out of Kleenex and I've been resorting to toilet paper and napkins. Wow. I need to go to the store, but I don't want to leave my house. <laughs> so I think the not leaving the house is going to win. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I mean, you're welcome to everybody that we edit out all the sniffles that are usually in these episodes because it's filled normally. And this time it's even more so. Right. As I sniffled right at the end of that sentence. <laughs> Who is it first this time? Honestly, I don't even remember. I feel like I went first last time. That might just be in my head. That I, That's what I was thinking, too, but I wasn't sure, so I will go first. <laughs> we'll go with that, yeah. Okay. Although this case does not take place in Michigan, the woman who was killed in the case was from Norton Shores. So on December 16, 1988, the body of a young female was found about five miles from the Alabama state line on Highway I-59 in Dade County, Georgia. For years, the decedent's identity would be unknown, but that was until 2022 when she was identified as Stacy Lynn, and I am so sorry, Chahorsky, who had been missing for 33 years using genealogy technology. Nice. This would be known as the first known time that not only the technology named the victim, but also the killer in the same case. No way. Yes. That's amazing. Stacy Chahorsky was traveling the country when she vanished. She was reported missing in January of 89 by her mother. The killer had been identified as Henry Frederick Wise, also known as Haas Wise, a truck driver and stunt driver. Wise would have been 34 at the time of the murder in 1988. The article said 98, but I believe that is a typo. There were quite a few typos in this article that I had to fix. (laughs) So so there's that. And there's no evidence in the article stating that she had been kept alive and hidden for 10 years. So I don't think that was the case here. I think they just typed her on. Okay. Henry Hosswise perished in a 1999 car accident at the Myrtle Beach Speedway in South Carolina and burned to death in the crash. Ooh. I mean, karma? Right. Precisely. 
Officials stated that Wise had a criminal history in Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina, but that his arrest predate mandatory DNA testing after a felony arrest. So I guess back then they didn't do any, anything. When someone had a felony arrest, it's just like, okay. And you get let off and it's just like, see you later. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Because there weren't as like technologically advanced as we are now. Because we've no. seen things before. Who was it? Um, Royal Oak Sniper. Wasn't he one where they kind of lost track of him? Because they didn't really have computer systems at the time to be able to know where people were. I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. Once Stacy had been identified, investigators looked toward naming her murderer. The FBI sent DNA to Othram, a private lab in Texas that specializes in forensic genealogy. With the data, the GBI, I thought was a typo, is apparently not, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, mm. began to interview potential family members and obtained DNA swabs to compare to the profile, which identified Weiss. Carrie Farley, the special agent in charge of FBI Atlanta, said this case is key because it's the first time that we know of that investigative genealogy was used to identify both the victim and the killer in the same case. And that despite the breakthrough, the news does not erase the pain for Stacy's family, but hopefully it answers some questions. Despite solving the two main pieces of the case, the motive obviously still remains a mystery. Nobody really knows much of anything with him, with both of them gone. Really don't know much of anything on that front. Joe Montgomery, the special agent in charge of the GBI's Region 1 investigative office, said that Wise worked for the Western Carolina Trucking Company and that route he would take from the trucking company would have put him through Chattanooga, Nashville, and Birmingham, which would have been a direct route to where Stacy was found. So everything just lines up. He also said that it's possible that Wise was behind other crimes and his DNA is now in the FBI's combined DNA index system. And Wise uh, sometimes lived in the Carolinas and other times in Florida while he also had family in Georgia. So that's why... Also, he was in all those places. Yeah. Chahorsky's family was not in attendance for the press conference, but Special Agent Montgomery said that telling her mother news that the killer was identified was overwhelming and that she is at peace knowing that he is dead. It's fair. DNA and, yeah, right? I, same. Same. Riddance. <laughs> DNA and genealogy testing had been gradually used more to solve cold cases. And also in 2022, a cold case murder of a Washington woman was solved using a cigarette butt that had been left at the scene, also with Ortham's genealogy testing. Damn. So, Ortham's coming in clutch with all these different tests. Um, and this was an NBC News article that was found on MSN. Um, but, yeah. thought that was pretty interesting. Especially since she's from... Michigan. I live in North Carolina. It's just kind of a interesting little yeah. connection. And I'm kind of well, part of me is like, wow, this is uh, 
makes it tougher <laughs> to makes it tougher to be a criminal these days when they can look back like so part of me is like that's a little unfair but at the same time i'm like no it's not i don't care <laughs> well that's how they found um i'm trying to remember what they called him but i think it was the um golden the golden the golden Gate state killer, killer golden state killer um, old man in court they could not find him for so many years Joseph D'Angelo, is that his name? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that sounds right. Yeah, they found him with DNA because they had tested something in the system and came back with his family members. Mm-hmm. Yay, Paul Holes. <laughs> He's the detective on the case. <laughs> As a big thing, I listened to my favorite murder a lot. So when all that stuff was coming out, when they interviewed Paul Holes, and then he kind of like blew up and became super well-known in like the crime community i guess if mm-hmm. that's what we want to call <laughs> call ourselves the but true there crime was the, community. <laughs> yeah well there was that one story i sent you too where a lady was questioned by police because her fingerprints were found at a murder scene mm-hmm. and she used to stock shelves that was the one i told you about yeah so in walmart like, so that's kind of where I would worry. It's like, oh, I'm stocking shelves. Uh, somehow your, like your fingerprints or your DNA are on something that are then used to kill someone, and then they're like, you're being questioned for murder. That's like, uh, that's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. No, I used to work at a Walmart in the electronics department, and then even sometimes they would have me run register up front if they were low on people back when people actually ran registers up front um. and i think it was a vase was the new story it was like her fingerprints were found on a vase in another state that she was no longer in she's like yeah i used to work there so like wipe wipe down your glass when you buy it from a store because if you if you die uh Just, you know please want to know why your fingerprints are in this person's house <laughs> And I didn't kill you, ma'am. So please wipe down these vases. Just wipe down stuff when you get it, you know? Sanitize yeah. all that stuff. You know, just wipe, wipe your things down. Right. Well, I mean, there was one that made me mad. I'd have to look it back up. But I had heard about, like, a girl who was later... It was something in connection to that. But a girl who was later on um, convicted... Of murder, but at the time of the murder, she would have been like 12 to 14 years old and she was not, but they found her fingerprint on one thing in her house. Who knows how it happened? Yeah. Like it could have been like at a store where the girl touched something, put it back or her mom said, put that back. We're not buying it. Yeah. And then the lady bought it. Who knows? Something they you pick actually, up at a garage sale. <laughs> they actually put her in jail for it. That's insane later in life but she's like i was like oh no you did it when i'm talking i mean i was mad (laughs) yeah the prosecutor decided to push that through which i don't understand (laughs) and who allowed it yeah and who convicted her what is wrong with you people (laughs) (laughs) who's the da who was like, yeah, that makes sense. Give me their number. I want to make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, man? What is your issue? <laughs> like, rapists are getting a year 
Maybe. Not even. And a kid that was 12 at the time, you're going to prosecute? Yeah. With what evidence other than a fingerprint? Somewhere, like on something. It's so weird. Anyway, (laughs) mine's a little bit of a longer one. Because I started going down this rabbit hole and I had to cut out so much that I may have to make like a series coming up because there's there's so much, so much to it. Because I started looking into prohibition and then like gangs and mafia and all the things that sprung up in that time. And there was quite a bit for Michigan. It's just surprising between like Detroit area Upper Peninsula, there's a ton. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. So I'm going to start out with what came to be Detroit's dominant criminal gang during the 1920s. So first, I'll give you some background. Uh, Something I didn't know, I guess I didn't realize. In 1917, the Michigan legislature prohibited the sale of liquor three years before the national prohibition was established by the 18th Constitutional Amendment in 1920. I didn't know Michigan was that early uh, compared to the rest of the U.S. Along with temperance supporters, industrialist Henry Ford owned the River Rouge plant and desired a sober workforce. So he backed the Damon Act, a state law that, along with the Wiley Act, prohibited virtually all possession, manufacture, or sale of alcohol starting in 1918. So we're going to let... Damn it, Ford. Uh, A car guy. You're going to let this capitalist man in Detroit let this mechanic ban liquor. Tell us what we can do. Everyone in the state. It's so stupid. Yeah. So, since Detroit is close to Ohio and Canada, bootleggers and others would import liquor from Toledo, where it was still legal, and smuggled liquor in from Canada. The port city of Windsor, Ontario, directly across the Detroit River uh, from Detroit, became a major point for smuggling alcohol into the U.S. The Canadian government had also banned the use of alcoholic beverages, but still approved and licensed distilleries and breweries to manufacture and export alcohol. I don't know what this time was that everybody was like, alcohol's bad. Well, and there's, (laughs) and when you go down that hole, there's a lot on it. Um, there were a lot of women getting beat. There were, I like, I watched um, Bailey Sarian. Lo- I adore her. She does so much and um, she does like murder mystery and makeup Mondays, but then she also has Dark History, which her Dark History podcast that she does, she, I did watch one where she did it on like Prohibition. Mm-hmm. And, that was quite eye-opening and quite strange. Yeah. Listening to their reasonings behind it, it, it wasn't going to fix the situation they thought it would. And then it just meant that people were doing it under the table. And then the government, okay, <clears throat> <laughs> something I learned, the government, I don't know if this happened in Michigan, but in a lot of other places. The government was finding some of these bootleggers and they were poisoning, mm-hmm. poisoning the alcohol. 
so that when they sold it to people, well, I'm going to get into table, that on my died. next. The so, next, <laughs> the next part is going to okay. get into some more of. <laughs> I was going to say I learned a whole. But yes. Yeah, I'm going to get into actual like prohibition in Michigan, but oh yeah, not in not in this episode. So yeah, what I'm going to talk about today specifically is the Purple Gang, also known as the Sugar House Gang. A criminal mob of bootleggers and hijackers made up of mostly Jewish gangsters. Oh, wow. I did not know that was a thing until I started looking into what the Purple Gang was. No idea. Especially in Detroit. I didn't know there was like a big Jewish community. No, I didn't know that either. But once I read the names of who were involved, I was like, oh, that last name is still familiar. So Detroit's immigrant neighborhoods suffered from widespread poverty, and to survive, some residents turned to crime. The Hastings Street neighborhood in Detroit's Lower East Side was known as Paradise Valley. Most of the Purple Gang's main members went to Bishop School, where many had been placed in the Division for Problem Children. Gang members were mostly American-born children of Jewish immigrants, primarily from Russia and Poland, who had come to the United States in the Great Immigration Wave, from 1881 to 1914. The gang was led by brothers Abe, Joe, Raymond, and Isidore Izzy Bernstein, who had moved to Detroit from New York City. So, if you're from Michigan, Bernstein, you see all the time commercials for their law office. (laughs) Bernstein and Bernstein. Yep, see those all the time. I still remember the faces. (laughs) Yep. Like those those commercials have been on for years. It's just a very familiar name. So oh, when you so hear that is. now, you think you think law. Uh, previously, you think the Purple Gang. <laughs> the Purple Gang started off as petty thieves and extortionists, but quickly progressed to armed robbery and truck hijacking under the guidance of older neighborhood gangsters Charles Leiter and Henry Shore. They gained notoriety for their operations and savagery, and they brought in gangsters from other cities to work as enforcers. Or There are some theories as to the origin of the name Purple Gang, because I was trying to find like an actual why, mm-hmm. why Purple Gang. Why Purple? I don't understand. Right. <laughs> um, but everything I saw sounded strange to me and like, <laughs> like not realistic. <laughs> It's probably something really weird It's or an inside joke or yeah. something that we're just not meant to know. Yeah, it might have been the Times. I don't know. So one version says that a member of the gang was a boxer who wore purple shorts during his fights. Still, d- I, d- I don't know that that makes sense. Or maybe he wore the purple shorts <laughs> because of the purple gang. Yeah, and d- I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that color. It seems strange. Another was that the name came from a conversation between two shopkeepers stating that the boys, quote, they're rotten, purple like the color of bad meat. They're a purple gang. That sounds fake to me also, but okay. Yeah. So there's nothing concrete as to why. Cool. In 1929, there were 25,000 known illegal saloons just in Detroit. So there was a large business for bootleggers, including the Purple Gang. The gang became hijackers and gained a reputation for stealing the alcohol cargo of older and more established criminal gangs. 
The Purple Gang also employed gangs for raw labor and transport. For example, the Purple Gang enlisted the Little Jewish Navy to carry alcohol over the Detroit River from Canada before selling it themselves. Did you also know there's a Jewish Navy? Because I did not. No, no clue. (laughs) And that was also new to me. Chicago gangster Al Capone was against expanding his rackets in Detroit, so he began a business accommodation with the Purple Gang in order to prevent war. But I thought I read or watched a documentary where it's possible he went to them when Prohibition started because they already knew the area, had everything established, and had knowledge of, you know, getting alcohol into the U.S. Right. Which sounds more likely. Yeah. To me. If you're already known for, we've had to be doing this for two or three years before the rest of the United States. It kind of makes sense that you would ask somebody with that knowledge. And for several years, the gang supplied Canadian whiskey to the Capone organization in Chicago. The Purple Gang was involved in various other criminal activities, such as kidnapping other gangsters for ransom, which was apparently a popular activity. During that time, <laughs> just kidnapping. Uh, and the FBI suspected they were involved with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Wasn't, maybe I'm thinking of a different case, but wasn't that like fake? The Lindbergh the, baby case? There's all kinds of theories, but at the I time. Heard, I, yeah. Yeah, at the time they were suspected, but I've heard it was fake. It's conspiracy. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. I, <laughs> huh. That's a big rabbit hole, though. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good dodge. <laughs> By the late 1920s, the Purple Gang ruled over the Detroit underworld, controlling the city's vice, gambling, liquor, and drug trade. They also ran the local wire service, providing horse racing information to local horse betting parlors. The gang members hung around with more infamous mobsters, branching into other cities as well. Abe Bernstein was a friend of other gangsters, including Mayor Lansky and Joe Adonis, with whom he owned several Miami, Florida gambling casinos in his later years. The gang hijacked prizefight films and forced movie theaters to show them for a high fee. They also defrauded insurance companies by staging fake accidents. It is estimated that the Purple Gang um, could be responsible for 500 murders in the city. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. One of the things they were included in, I'd never heard of this before either. I learned so much reading this history. As the gang grew in size and importance, they began hiring themselves out as hitmen. And they took part of the uh, cleaners and dyers war. I had no idea what that was. The Purples profited from the Detroit laundry industry unions and associations and were hired to keep union members in line and to harass non-union independents. Bombing, arson, theft, and murder were used to enforce union policy. Now, I've heard of unions in the copper industry and like other big operations. I did not know that laundry service was that big of a deal back then. I mean, you wouldn't think... Well, you got to think about, too, that, that time period, Not it, it was more likely for people to use a laundry service than it was to people necess- have washing machines in their home. Maybe that was more of a city thing. 
because yeah. being from a rural area, like everybody just had wash tubs and you did your laundry by hand. Yeah. Or when washing machines started to become a thing, people were getting them for their home if they had enough money to. So Yeah, and plus like grandma always had a line up in the backyard where you could just hang up all your clothes yeah. and they could dry. Where I don't think in the cities they're going to really have clotheslines. I know I've seen ones going between buildings, like yeah. in movies and stuff, where they have from one building go to the other and people would hate. But I don't think it was probably as popular to use to, to use your own methods Yeah, like that. I think it would be more likely to use a like laundry service. Yeah, that does make sense more for a city mm-hmm. in the 1920s where everybody's packed in to use a laundry surface versus washing things in your house you know are they talking about an actual laundry service or are they talking about you know the the money laundering service that started in that time frame too yeah that was where that all came from yeah weirdly this is actual laundry (laughs) because i was gonna say that's about the time when money laundering started because of Mm. laundry service so That's probably where it comes from. I don't know. I'd have to look into that one. In 1927, nine members of the Purple Gang, Abe Bernstein, Raymond Bernstein, Irving Milberg, Eddie Fletcher, Joe Miller, Irving Shapiro, Abe Kaminsky, Abe Axler, and Simon Axler, were arrested and charged with the conspiracy to extort money from Detroit wholesale cleaners and dyers. They were acquitted of all charges. Harry... Rosman was president and owner of Famous Cleaners and Dyers in Detroit. He was the key witness testifying against the Purple Gang in a trial that lasted from 1928 to 1929. The prosecution alleged extortion against Detroit area businesses. Rosman testified that the Purple Gang asked for $1,000 a week from his and other area cleaners and dyers businesses for their protection against violence. And the violence was against them. So (laughs) I'm not sure if as I was looking at that, I wasn't sure if that was a thousand dollars a week in 1920s money or if that was converted in 2009 when the book was written. Because in 1929, a thousand dollars was over seventeen thousand dollars in today's money. And that seemed a lot for a cleaner to make in a week. Yeah. So I'm. My guess was that the thousand a week was converted, you know, in 2009 when the book was written. Right. I was trying to figure it out. I'm like, gosh, does that seem right? That's a little high for yeah. protection, but especially for a laundry service, and that that unless that was like combined with everyone. But right. I don't know. A Detroit mob war started between the. Italian, Irish, and Jewish bootleggers over territory. Purples fought a turf war with the Licavoli Squad. Again, another weird name. They're a squad. Led by brothers (laughs) Tommy and Pete Licavoli. In March 1927, three men were killed. The men had been brought into Detroit as hired assassins for the Purple Gang, and the motive for the murder was believed to be retaliation for a double cross. The homicides took place in an apartment leased by Purple Gang members, Eddie Fletcher and Abe Axler, which made them prime suspects in the death. 
The three suspects, Flesher Axler and contract killer Fred Burke, were questioned, as were the other Purples and associates, but no one was ever convicted of the murders. These murders were also reportedly the first use of a submachine gun in a Detroit underworld murder. Mm. I mean, that just seems strange to me that they would use their own lease department for that, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, different times. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were also, you know, in with police for a lot of things, so they probably oh, w- yeah. wouldn't think it mattered. The Purple Gang was also suspected of taking part in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago. On February 13th, 1929, Abe Bernstein supposedly called Bugs Moran to tell him that a stolen load of booze was on its way to Chicago. Moran, who was in the middle of a turf war with Capone, only recently began to trust Bernstein, who had previously been Capone's main supplier of Canadian liquor. The next day, instead of delivering the load of liquor, four men, two in police uniforms, went to SMC Cartage on North Clark Street and opened fire with Thompson submachine guns, killing seven men. Oh, wow. Several witnesses and some items of physical evidence implicated Burke in the slayings, but he was never charged. Hmm. So those are a couple times where the uh, contract killer may have been used and... Right. Nothing happened. Which was big back then, because, I mean, murder for hire was way more common then and than it is now, because you were more likely to get away with it, being a contract killer back then. Yeah. Because they didn't have the genealogy testing that we talked yeah. about earlier, or regular blood testing. and There's not cameras regular... everywhere, and <laughs> if you see a contract killer killing someone and there's like gang members around i could see you wanting to be like i saw nothing i'm not gonna be next yeah because <laughs> what are the chances that you're gonna go testify against the mob and you uh make it when, to the and, trial yeah so right later on there was something called the collingwood manor massacre the purple gang terrorized detroiters with street executions of their enemies This included the February 1st, 1927 murder of police officer Vivian Welsh. Welsh was later revealed to be a dirty cop who was trying to extort money from the Purple Gang. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yeah. I mean. (laughs) Extort money from a mob. Whoops, you're dead. Who would have thunk it? (laughs) Totally surprised. Shocked and dismayed, really. (laughs) Yep. The gang was also accused of murdering well-known radio figure Jerry Buckley in 1930 in the lobby of a downtown hotel. However, the Purple's involvement with Buckley's death is disputed as the police suspected the local Sicilian mob. Lots of mobs in Detroit. In 1931, an intra-gang dispute ended in the murder of three Purples by Chicago gangsters who had been brought to Detroit to help out the Purple Gang. The three men had violated an underworld code by operating outside the territory given to them by Purple Gang leadership. On September 16, 1931, Herman Jaime Paul, Isidore Joe Sutker, and Joseph N-Word Leibowitz were lured to an apartment on Collingwood Avenue, 
And I'm not saying that word <laughs> and getting canceled, even though no. that's what they called him. I'm too not black for that. So <laughs> I'm not going to say the word. Right. <laughs> and it oh was the goodness. time, but like, holy shit, that was your nickname? Uh, N-word Joe. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like that book, Tom and Huck or whatever, Huck Finn. Yeah. Where... Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say his name. It's in quotes, but, but I'm know. not saying his nickname. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, anyway, like, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pass on that one. They believe they were going to a peace conference with the purple leadership. After a brief discussion, the three men were gunned down. Authorities caught up with the gang. When they burst into Fletcher's apartment and found suspects, Abe Axler, Irving Milberg, and Eddie Fletcher playing cards. Ray Bernstein and Harry Keywell were also arrested. Irving Milberg, Harry Keywell, and Raymond Bernstein, three high-ranking purples, were convicted of first-degree murder in the Collingwood Manor Massacre and were sentenced to life in prison. Bernstein, Milberg, and Keywell were accompanied by police officers on a train headed to the Upper Peninsula to begin severing their sentences in the state's maximum security prison in Marquette. Harry Fleischer, another suspect, remained on the run until 1932, but he was never convicted in connection with the massacre. But later on, he served time in Jackson Prison in the early 1950s for armed robbery. According to Detroit Police Chief of Detectives James E. McCarty, the convictions in the Collingwood Massacre broke the back of the once powerful Purple Gang. <laughs> this quote's weird. I don't know this word. Writing finesse to more than five years of arrogance and terrorism. How do you spell it? People spoke weird. F-I-N-I-S. Finesse. Finesse. Yeah. I'm just going to say, ending more than five years of Americans and terrorism. Yeah, it could have always been a typo, too. Yeah, I don't know. It was, that part was from Wikipedia, so who knows? Oh, uh, okay. For years, the Purples had enjoyed immunity from police interference, as witnesses to crimes were terrified of testifying against any criminal identified as a Purple gangster. And I've already said I can, you know, I can agree with that. I would be worried as well. The Purple Gang became more arrogant and sloppy as time went on, dressed flamboyantly, were known to frequent the city's night spots, and were well known to the public. So people knew who they were. Right. And I mean, I don't know about you, but if I lived in a time where people could easily get away with having you whacked, um... I, I, snitches get stitches, bro. Yeah. I would rather shut the hell up. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you saw nothing. Like, I saw nothing. I know nothing. Who? Purple Gang? Never heard of them. Yeah. Have a nice day, officer. Yep. Like, I don't know them or anything. So, I'm gonna go now. <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you mean I live above their, their laundromat? Poppycock. Never heard of him. Bye. Yep. Yep. But the police eventually moved against them as gang members began leaving behind too much evidence of their crimes. Philip Keywell had already been convicted of murder 
of Arthur Mixon on October 8th, 1930, and Joe Bernstein and Abe Bernstein were both given lengthy prison sentences after previously escaping significant jail time through intimidation and corrupt officials. So more infighting started, especially with the uh, violent murder of high-ranking members Abe Axler and Eddie Fletcher in November of 1933. Harry Millman murdered Axler and Fletcher for double-crossing him, Harry Fletcher, and the Bernstein brothers in a business deal. The one-time partial boss, Henry Shore, was killed in uh, further infighting. Some members drifted away, a few leaving Detroit, Others were executed by fellow members of rival gangs, and several members were imprisoned. A rival Sicilian gang, tired of competing with the Purples, eventually decided to just eliminate them. The gang continued to reduce the numbers, but the predecessors of Detroit's modern-day mafia stepped in and filled the void as the Purple Gang ultimately self-destructed. In the late 1930s, Abe Bernstein, realizing the organization was going downhill, met with the Italians to negotiate. Bernstein more or less dissolved the Purple Gang and agreed Jewish gangsters in Detroit would work for the Italians. Bernstein also had the role of unofficial advisor to Joe Zarelli. Not all of the Purple Gang agreed, however, including Harry Millman, a heavy drinker and feared enforcer, and his crew of junior purples decided to challenge the Italians. It does not sound smart when your numbers are low. Correct. So you can see where this is going. But first... (laughs) Uh, Millman would often start fights with the Italians, and the small crew would stick up mafia-controlled gambling dens and brothels. Bernstein warned Millman to stop, but he didn't listen. Attempts were made on Millman's life, including car bombs, and each failure spurred him on. However, on November 27, 1937, Millman was at Bosky's restaurant when two men walked in and started shooting, hitting Millman ten times, killing him and one of his men. So they got their message across. Yeah. (laughs) Joe Bernstein became a legitimate businessman and moved to California, soon followed by Isidore Izzy Bernstein. In 1963, Ray Bernstein suffered a stroke while in prison that paralyzed the left side of his body and put him in a wheelchair. In 1964, he was released on mercy parole, and at 61 years old, Ray Bernstein died on July 9th, 1966, in the U of M Medical Center. At 75, Abe Bernstein died of a heart attack on March 7, 1968, in his hotel room of the Book Cadillac in Detroit. There's a lot to that. (laughs) Uh, Some sources were, I had two books, The Purple Gang, Organized Crime in Detroit, by Paul R. Kavieff. I'm probably butchering that last name. Um, The other one was... Early Organized Crime in Detroit, Vice Corruption and the Rise of the Mafia by James A. Also going to butcher this because I think that's Italian. Book. Bucciolato? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, Wikipedia. And then I also found the FBI has a uh, vault 
for documents. A ton of stuff on this. A ton of stuff on mobs. If you're ever curious, it's vault.fbi.gov. And you can search for, like, names or organizations. So I have, like, over 50 pages of documents the FBI had on the profile. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot to that. And I'll, I'll get more into, like, yeah. prohibition and, that's a whole and things that happen. That. It's, there's a whole book on just Upper Peninsula oh, I prohibition. Believe, I mean... Because I've said, but we're right across the lake from Canada. Sault Ste. Marie was basically across a river. You've got, you know, loggers and miners and everybody else. So. Yeah, and I mean, yes. it's the middle, like, most of the UP is trees. It's forests. Yeah. It's beautiful, but that's what most of it is. So you could literally go yeah. out in the middle of nowhere set up shop who's gonna know it's there like yeah i'll get into that on the next one because it's really interesting like all the history and that yeah it's not surprising that i mean detroit i didn't like i i hadn't heard much about the prohibition era or even like mafia i knew a lot of it was chicago other big cities like that yeah, the location makes sense with the closeness to Canada. Yeah. It makes sense. I didn't, I guess, I not being from that area, I didn't realize the extent of mafia activity that was in Detroit at that time. But I mean, yeah, if you think about it, it does make sense. And it just exploded because of Prohibition. <laughs> the the United States basically was like, hey, stupid. we don't want you to drink. Um, let's increase mob activity and make the mafia a thing. When all they really had to do was have employers keep their employees accountable. You didn't have to be like, Joe, you came in drunk today. Get home. You're fired. Nope. No drinking sold. No drink sold ever in this state. Nobody can drink. That doesn't make sense, Bob. <laughs> and then the the entire United States to do that because prohibition. I was looking at it. Prohibition ended December nineteen thirty three. That's a long time. Yeah. Blind pigs and speakeasies everywhere. Right. But like you said, that's a giant hole <laughs> that just opens up to. Well, now you know there's going to be a boom in drugs. Like you're not being smart people <laughs> yeah aye, aye, aye. damn it ford <laughs> <laughs> like why is why is henry ford involved in this decision like you're in one city making in vehicles. the states what do you have to do with it yeah like you know what as a business owner i've decided i don't want this in my company no. therefore the entire state must follow me because i have money like f you know, off you gotta know that it's what's funny about it too is a lot of people probably used his vehicles to smuggle the alcohol how do you think nascar started yeah yeah it was bootleg in the police <laughs> moonshine yeah so i guess that's something that came out of it that's car racing making another and... left turn <laughs> And, you know, some moonshine's good. 
I like my old smoky. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's basically corn whiskey. Yeah. I think when I was looking up what the deal is, it's a corn mash. So it's, it's, corn, hey, it's corn whiskey. <laughs> people had to do what they had to do. And if you go to the Old Smoky Distillery in Tennessee, that's <laughs> like, like uh, this is not, a, not an ad, but, you know, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, a nice touristy area. You can go sample some moonshines and whiskeys. We've gotten away from ourselves. Yes. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back again soon. We're, we're not taking a big break this time, so we'll be back soon. Watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.